Thanks so much for listening to the Ridge Community Church Podcast. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors on staff at the Ridge, and our vision is to bring the hope of Jesus into every home. So as a piece of that, our goal each week is to bring you something that's hopeful and helpful. So subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss any hopeful and helpful conversations. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Ridge Community Church Podcast. If you find today's episode hopeful and helpful, then please follow or subscribe and then rate and review so that more people can find the conversation. We do have a special conversation for you today between myself, another one of the pastors at the Ridge, Tyler Volkers, and our special guest, Will Hutcherson. This conversation premiered on YouTube as a special digital event, and as such, Tyler will give a longer introduction to Will in just a second. But in our conversation with Will, we will discuss how to help kids and students with their mental health, and then we get to some questions that parents sent in as well. This is our conversation with Will. Hey, everyone, and welcome to a special digital event, How to Help Your Kids and Students Mental Health. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors on staff at The Ridge, and Tyler is also a pastor on staff at The Ridge, and we're joined by a special guest. Tyler, would you mind introducing our special guest? Absolutely. You know, I first uh, met Will at a gathering of next-gen pastors in Atlanta in early 2020, and Will started sharing some of the content that uh, we're actually going to hear from him share with us um, in just a little bit. And as I heard this uh, content, I was our kids and student pastor at the time. I was so excited because I wanted to share this with our kids' small group leaders, our high school small group leaders, because the content was just so helpful and practical. In fact, I know if uh, you're watching or listening to this event right now, you have a child or a student or a teenager in your life um, that you want to feel more comfortable and confident in talking about these things because these things are so um, important. In fact, it's a critical issue for us to talk about. And Will is actually uh, the right person to do this with. Uh, Will is a national speaker. He's the founder of Curate Hope, which is an organization that provides school programs uh, that promote mental health and resilience. He's been a pastor of kids and students in the next generation world for over 15 years. And he's the co-author of the book, Scene, which I have a copy of that right here. Scene, healing, despair, and anxiety in kids and teens through the power of connection. And in fact, we have a link to that book in the description uh, below. Um, as you hear from Will, you'll learn uh, that Will is just passionate uh, about finding practical ways to bring hope to kids and teens who are facing increasing amounts of anxiety, depression, and despair. Uh, Will is actually coming to us. He lives in the Sunshine State uh, with his wife, Arian, and three kids. So, Will, welcome. It is so great to have you here, bud. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yes, and uh, I, I am in the Sunshine State, so it's uh, probably a little bit warmer right now than than where you guys are. Yeah, here in Wisconsin, we actually have a balmy 38 degrees. It actually hasn't been a bad Ooh. winter for us so far right now, which has been great. So. Hey, yeah, Will, that's like a heat wave. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it's been a great, great winter so far. So, hey, Will, we'll jump right in. In the opening of your book scene, uh, you actually introduce us to one of your students who has a, another great name, Tyler as well, different Tyler than me. But uh, he, you, you shared with him how interactions with him led you down a path to actually write the book scene. So tell us about that and its implications for what you're seeing for kids and students across the country. Yeah, that's a great question, you know, uh, and th thank you guys for having me and giving me the opportunity to share with your community. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I was a next-gen pastor, been next-gen pastor now for 15 years. And I think when I first started working with kids and, and teens, uh, early 2000s, you guys can relate with this, is like, 
we we talked a lot about at-risk behavior. We were just trying to reduce at-risk behavior and kind of keep them alive, if you will. And I, I think even parents who parented teenagers in the 90s can relate with that. Uh, but something started to shift in, you know, I would say probably 2012, but it really became apparent uh, to me as uh, someone who worked with kids and teens, probably around 2016, um, it, it moved from just being concerned about the mental health crisis to really alarmed about the mental health crisis. And Tyler, who you reference in in the book, that's one story of where I just felt like I had a lot of spiritual tools and my spiritual tools were powerful tools. Like there's power in Jesus name. There's power in reading God's word. There's, there's power in all of those things. But I just felt like I was missing some of the practical things when it came to the mental health, like Tyler specifically, who struggled with depression. And I just felt like the way that I was navigating that. And I later realized wasn't necessarily helpful. Um, I, I thought I could just help him kind of, get over it, like he man over uh, the mental health crisis that he was in and um, realized in, in hindsight that that was, that was not helpful. And so um, as parents and caring adults, as pastors, as ministry leaders, as teachers, I think a lot of us have felt that way. Uh, even in recent years, as this mental health crisis has become even more uh, aware to a lot of us, we're more aware of it uh, post COVID, um, we at times probably feel powerless or we feel ill-equipped or we just don't know what to do. And I have I felt exactly that way. And so in 2016, that kind of set me on a journey where I began to really dive into the research, um, started to um, talk to some of my mental health friends. Uh, that, that's always been an interest of mine. You know, when I was in college, I changed my uh, major, you know, five times, like most of us. Um, but one of my majors at one point was psychology. It's not where I landed. So as I started to talk with my friends and say, hey, how has God wired our brains and what can we do to help the next generation? That's where, you know, these ideas that we share and seen kind of came from. And Dr. Chinway Williams being one of those key friends and her and I uh, started to collaborate together and saying, hey, how do we simplify this? How do we really equip parents and caring adults with tools that we know influence the brain towards healing. And um, and that's where Keen Scene kind of came about, was a response to uh, feeling that myself and seeing the, the tension that exists. Hey, well, as you've kind of shared these, these practical things that maybe kind of combine with the spiritual elements and things of that nature, have you ever had, I don't know if kickback is the right answer, but I know that in a lot of church circles, there's often that, oh, it has to be this spiritual side. Yeah. And there's almost like a rejection of the practical stuff. Yeah. Have you felt that and like maybe helped walk some people through that tension? Yeah. You know, that that is a really good point because I think that has been the historical challenge within the faith community and specifically within the church that we've often kind of seen mental health challenges as only a spiritual problem. Um, and so the way that I like to navigate this and help kind of realize that it's it's okay to have some practical tools with this is when we apply the brain as just an organ and we recognize the brain is an organ. So the brain is unique because it is a unique convergence of the spiritual and the physical together, right? Like thoughts, what are thoughts? Thoughts are kind of spiritual in some ways, right? So yeah. the brain is a unique organ 
But we also have to remember it is an organ, just like our heart, our beating heart is an organ, our lungs are an organ, our kidneys are an organ. It's a part of our body. And so as Christians, we have this concept when it comes to our health and our body that we understand that there's practical things that we can take, but we also uh, don't, we don't miss the faith side of it, right? So for instance, a, a key illustration to this would be if we were hanging out and say we were in the same room and I started to have a heart attack, like I went into cardiac arrest, my hope would be that that John, you and Tyler would say, hey, let's call 911 and let's get Will to the hospital <laughs> and let's pray for him right now, right? That there would be a practical step yeah. and then there would be a faith step right. that coincides with that. It comes together alongside of it. It's faith and action. And we intuitively understand that. Like we're not going to not act. My, my hope would be that you guys wouldn't be like, hey, hey, Will's having a heart attack. Let's just pause and pray for the next 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> let's let's pray for sure. Let's pray. But also let's yeah. take some action steps. And in the same way, we have to think of our brain that way. Mental health, these practical tools of how we can help influence the brain towards healing, um, mental health. Uh, healthy steps that we can take to promote mental health. Those are all just practical things because God has wired our brain and God knows a few things about our brain, right? And it just so happens that we can even see some really cool themes in the way that Jesus connect with, connected with people that really help their mental health, not just their soul. Yes, Jesus healed physical bodies. He 100% is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the healer and the keeper of our souls. But he also knows a whole lot about our minds and our mental health. And um, and he does the, you know, he does certain things, even through the gospels that you can see that he just shows up and he sees people on a deeper level. And that is really good for their brains. Hey, Will, one of the key ideas that I've heard you mention and talk about before, and you bring in scene kind of tying in the, the physical with the spiritual is the, this key concept of despair. And I haven't really heard uh, despair talked about in the way related to our kids and students' mental health. And so can you define what despair is for us? And when a, a child or a student uh, is going through despair, what is, what is happening them, to them mentally, emotionally, yeah. physically? Because I think we have many parents watching and, and leaders watching right now that they've seen this, but they haven't found a way to articulate it. So can you help them help them understand what, what is going yeah. on? So Dr. Chinway and I really wrestled with this idea. And the reason why we landed on despair, because despair is kind of the foundational piece to this. Like sometimes as parents and caring adults, as teachers, as pastors, we feel like we need to diagnose kids. Like we start to see some things that are concerning. Uh, maybe we start to hear of some suicidal ideation and we immediately want to label it as the two big rocks that are often thrown around in our culture. Well, they have anxiety or they have depression. Mm -hmm. And while that may be true, sometimes we take a lot of complexity and we just broad stroke it into these two diagnoses, if you will. And um, and I don't think that's helpful. And, and honestly, sometimes I think that puts too much pressure on us as the helpers as trying to figure out, well, do they have depression? And, you know, what are the symptoms of depression? Like how many of these symptoms do they have? And, and I think what's most helpful for parents is that we don't have to figure out our kids' diagnoses. I, I think that's important for experts, for doctors, for psychiatrists, for counselors to help navigate those things because they 
they understand the study of the brain a lot deeper than we do. But the one thing that we can do is we can recognize despair. And the reason why we can recognize despair is because we've all felt a sense of despair, whether it was temporary despair or a, a longer season of despair. We know what it feels like to be in a place of, of hopelessness, to feel like you're at the end of your rope and you just don't know where else to go. And so if we can start with this point of empathy, of seeing uh, when somebody's really hurting and then respond in an appropriate way that helps influence them towards healing, I think that's the main key. So all these other pieces are important, but our response is the is is the part that we can play. So it's I like to think of it as a wraparound approach, right? Like we need doctors, we need counselors, we need uh, medicine at times. Like there's some practical things that are needed. But when it comes to us as parents and caring adults, we have a role to play. And when we apply these things, the brain does predictable things. So the brain responds in predictable ways when we experience stress or you know anxiety, like despair is one of those outcomes. Um, but the brain also does predictable things when we feel connection or we feel seen on a deep level. And so the way we like to illustrate this in scene and we kind of simplify the neuroscience because most likely if you're watching this or <laughs> listening to this, you're probably not a neuroscientist, right? And the brain can be really comp complex. And, and if you read books about this, sometimes it's like, oh my goodness, like this is a little too much. So we, we simplified the processes of this neuroscience into two hemispheres of the brain. Now, the brain is made up of a lot more parts than this, but the bulk process uh, can be explained by just breaking down the brain into, into two sides. You have the right side of your brain and you have the left side of your brain. And so the right side of your brain is predominantly where your emotional processing takes place. This is where your amygdala tends to uh, be more on the right side of your brain, your fight, flight, or freeze, if you're familiar with that phrase. And, uh, and then the left side of your brain is where we have more of that logical processing, that higher end uh, critical thinking processing. So when we experience stress um, over, over time, especially, it can create kind of this drip of cortisol, kind of like a drip, 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 drip. Mm -hmm. Cortisol is a, a hormone you've likely heard of. It's that stress hormone. And so over time, too much cortisol flooding our system almost creates kind of a dispairing between the right side and the left side of the brain. So we like to think of despair as an easy way to remind, remember this. Despair is a dispair between the left side logical and right side emotional side of the brain. And this can be a really, really difficult thing that somebody experiences. Psychologists call this uh, an emotional detachment. Um, there's this sense of feeling kind of detached from my current emotional state. And if you think about it, when, you, when you've experienced somebody who's in like crisis mode or they're experiencing high level of despair, if you ask them how they feel, oftentimes they'll say things like, I feel numb, or they'll say, I just, I don't know how I feel. And the reason why is because when those two sides are detached, when the emotional and left side of the brain are kind of uh, despaired, it's really hard for them to understand what's happening on the emotional side and put it into words because our language processing exists on the logical left side of the brain. And when the two sides are separated, we just simply can't do it. Um, so this is, um, as one theologian put it, kind of like the dark night of the soul, if you will, you know. And this can be a lonely place that people experience when they experience this level of despair.
But just as much as the brain responds predictably in that way, where the two sides kind of detach, the brain also responds predictably to love and empathy in a powerful and profound way. What we see is that through another hormone, oxytocin, when we feel seen, when we feel connection, when we feel empathy, especially from somebody that we know loves us and cares about us, the two sides of the brain can actually re-engage. We can re-engage the logical left side. Uh, the core kind of science behind this is called attachment uh, theory and attachment science, it can help reroute back to places where we felt nurtured, we felt safe, we felt seen, and uh, decrease that crisis mode, decrease um, despair, and uh, and bring the two sides back together. That's really great. And that's the role that parents and caring adults can play, regardless of your your education or not, right? Just playing the role of, hey, I want to help you feel seen to help bring that. Yeah, care. absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's it, the power mm -hmm. of connection. And, mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily, I mean, parents have a superpower. They could do it mm -hmm. faster and quicker than anybody because the brain has a stronger emotional memory than even mm -hmm. cognitive memory. So um, the brain remembers when you held your child uh, as a young infant, you looked at them, you smiled gently and you rubbed their face, like mm -hmm. all of that attachment is still programmed in their minds. And so mm -hmm. when they feel seen on deep level, even as a teenager, they're, they're kind of rerouting back to those safe places. That's really good. And and Will, I know a, as a parent, I have, you know, an 11 year old and a, and a six year old. And so you feel sometimes the weight of, well, how do I do that? You know, because yeah. you see them going through a moment of despair and you feel this weight and you're like, I'm, I'm not sure how, how to do this. And so, Will, one of the most helpful things I think you've done is you've given some handles for parents and caring adults to be able to do this with, with some practical tools. Can you share a few of those with us and, and how is that helpful? Maybe yeah. give some real examples of um, how this is helpful for kids and students. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're absolutely right. We say connection and what does connection mean? And sometimes that can just seem too philosophical. So that's what Dr. Chin Wei and I really wanted to do with scene is we wanted to make connection simple and understand that sometimes we, we look at these simple connection tools and we almost discard them as, well, they're not complex enough or it can't be that simple, <laughs> but it really is that simple. Like the brain responds in predictable ways with connection with empathy. And so how do we make that practical? Well, uh, one of the first things we talk about is just the importance of showing up. Like, again, that that seems like it's almost too simple to matter, but actually showing up is, is probably 50% of the work. Um, we live in a very digital culture now, right? So we communicate a lot in, in mediums like this. And whereas, you know, this is a, a good medium where at least we can see facial expressions, we can hear a little bit of tone of voice, we're still missing core elements of connection. And our brains don't respond to empathy the same way digitally as we do face-to-face. -face. And the reason why is because if we're talking on the phone or we're reading a text message, we can't feel the empathy. We don't see the facial expressions. We don't always hear the tone of voice. And we certainly don't feel appropriate physical touch. All of that communicates to the brain that somebody cares about me. So we can't really have um, that kind of power of that empathy of influencing the brain towards uh, healing without physical presence. So showing up is is really important. We intuitively, by the way, know this as parents, don't we? I mean, think about it. Like if we've ever had a, a best friend or somebody that we really care about go through crisis, what do we typically do? Even if they live in another state, we get on the plane and we just simply show up, right? I think about um, early on when I was a youth pastor, I was uh, I was probably like 23. It was in the first couple of years uh, that I was a youth pastor. 
And I had a student who had uh, an unexpected death that their, their father passed away. And I got the call around midnight and just knew that I, I should just show up, you know. And as I was driving, I uh, picked up his small group leader. His small group leader happened to be uh, the chief of the, the fire department. And we're driving. I was talking to his name's Bill. I was saying, Bill, you know, we got to, you know, I got to share this verse. Maybe I can share this verse or what should I say here? And I was trying to think of all the things I should say to help comfort this kid. And I remember Bill just said, well, 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 listen, you don't you don't have to say anything. You just mm -hmm. simply need to show up. He said it's called the ministry of presence. Mm -hmm. And when he said that, it it hit me. I'm like, right, right. We just need to show up because when we show up, people feel love, right? That's that's the end result. And so the first step to this connection side is just simply showing up. And in scene, we take that a little further. We explain what showing up really means, like showing up, you know, undistracted, showing up before they ask us to. Like there's different ways that we can show up, but showing up is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. And then once we show up, we have to kind of slow down and see them, right? Mm -hmm. um, as parents, I know I'm guilty of this. I have three kids myself. I have a 12-year-old, I have a nine-year-old, and I have a six-year-old. And sometimes, you know, we're moving 100 miles per hour. We're trying to maybe finish an email. We're trying to uh, get dinner started and get them out the door for some type of activity. And sometimes our lives just get so busy that when our kids try to talk to us or connect with us, sometimes we just miss the emotion. We miss what's really happening. Um, I know that this has happened with me. I remember one day my son, Liam, he was a little bit younger and he came home and he, he wanted me to play Legos with him. And I was, um, you know, busy trying to finish up some work in my, my home office. And, and uh, I said, well, buddy, you know, we talked about after school, you were going to clean your room. And he goes, yeah, I know, but, you know, can we just play Legos? I said, no, you got to clean your room. Okay, well, can you just help me clean my room? No, I can't help you clean your room. You, you need to clean your room. And we kind of go back and forth on this. And finally, you know, he delays, you know, he leaves, he comes back, he delays back and forth. And finally, I just get really firm. I say, Liam, that's it. Like, go clean your room. You know, like this, this um, very firm Mm -hmm. uh, stance I made almost like an ultimatum. And I even made him a deal. I said, listen, if you go clean your room, I'll give you $3. But if you don't clean your room, you're going to give me $3. Right. <laughs> and so he comes back with $3 and, uh, and he's like, here you go. Here's my $3. I go, no, 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 you're missing the point. I don't want your money. I want you to clean your room, go clean your room. And the, the whole thing kind of climax to this moment where Liam comes back, the, the fourth time now and um, kind of tearful, you know, tear, tears in his eyes. And he has all the money from his piggy bank and he puts it in my lap. And he says, here's all my money. Take it all. If this is what it takes to spend time with you, you can have it. Oh, wow. And in that moment, um, parent guilt came on really heavy. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you're like, mm -hmm. Oh, geez, I'm the worst parent. Like you just start to feel this. But it was also at that moment, I finally saw him. Like I saw beyond the behavior and the defiance and realized he was trying to communicate with me the whole time that for whatever reason that day, he just needed a little bit of connection. He just needed me to stop, slow down and see him on a deeper level. And so with, uh, 
with a thousand pennies in my lap. <laughs> I, um, I stopped what I was doing. I got down, you know, at his level, you know, on my knees and looked him in the eye. And I said, buddy, I'm really sorry. I, uh, wasn't seeing you. I said, I can see now that you just need some connection. You need some, some time to connect and talk. And, um, and I'm sorry, I missed that. And I gave him a hug and we talked a little bit. And, and at the end of that connection, like I went and helped him a little bit with his room and, and he still cleaned his room. Like we got to the principle of, you know, we got to take responsibility and blah, blah, blah. But it was, it was easier for him because he, he got what he needed first. He needed emotional connection. He needed to be seen. And it turns out like he had a pretty rough day at school. And there was some, there was a lot more to it than just quote unquote defiance. Mm -hmm. And so when we show up and we, we just see a teenager or a kid who's just having a behavioral issue, sometimes we have to pause and say, Hey, what's beyond the behavior? Like what's the emotion that's happening here? And it, go back to the brain illustration. If we have a right brain activated child where they're just a right brain energy is really, really high. And we try to meet them with just left brain logic or left brain principles. What tends to happen? We kind of fly by them, right? We miss them. So we have to pause and meet right brain with right brain. So if we see that a kid's upset, if we see that a teenager's upset, Yes, there's a principle. Yes, there's responsibility. Yes, do your homework. Yes, study. Like, yes, clean your room or whatever. But first, see the emotion. Meet them right where they are. And a way I could have handled this a lot differently is I could have said, hey, tell me what's going on. Like, are you okay? Do you need something? What do you need from me right now? Right? And maybe Liam would have had the ability at that point to say something like, I just want to spend some time with you for a few minutes, right? Mm -hmm. And I could have met him right where he was and kind of let him, we would like to say emotionally exhale. It's like the emotional side of the brain gets so elevated that sometimes they just need a pressure release, just a mm -hmm. emotionally exhale it out. Then once that happens and we re-engage the left side of the brain, then we can loop back around and have a left brain logical conversation or, you know, lead them towards the principle um, but we first have to meet right brain with right brain and not just, uh, you know, meet right brain with left brain because we tend to miss it. And when we do that, especially if you have a teenager, like when we meet them, if they're right brain activated, they're upset and we just meet them with left brain logic. What they will typically do uh, is they'll roll their eyes and they'll say, you just don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, and what I've come to realize is anytime somebody says you don't understand, what they're really saying is you don't see me. You don't see me. You don't see what I'm actually feeling in this moment. So if we can pause and recognize that and say, hey, I can see that you're upset or, hey, I can see that you're feeling a little anxious right now or, hey, I can see that you uh, that maybe you need to just spend some time or that there's something on your mind. Um, when we do that first, we allow them to emotionally exhale and then we can lead them with the left brain logic. So when we see them, they feel understood. That's the, the end result. Mm -hmm. So, so those are a couple of them. Um, you know, with all of that, there's, there's a few more tools that come into connection. Like, you know, with seeing, we talk about, you know, just listening. So you can't just show up and see them. You have to also, you know, listen. And um, we talk about some active listening skills there. And then we also discuss uh, how to build grit, you know, and speak life because it can't just be listening. Sometimes there's a response and affirmation to that. And, um, you know, with the, the building grit section, 
I think that's a portion that a lot of parents connect with, especially grandparents, by the way, because uh, usually when I'm talking to a grandparent and I say, and then we have to help them to build grit. Usually, you know, that's all the grandparents are like, yeah, that's right. You know, <laughs> like, amen. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and it's true. We do want gritty kids. Like we want resilient kids. Um, so it's not all about feelings and, you know, uh, just connecting with the emotion and just leaving it there. It's, it's helping lead them to having the grit when they're experiencing negative uh, challenges that they can overcome those. But that has to be in the context and the wraparound of connection. And I think when we when we kind of case study the generations and kind of what changed, because we hear that a lot too, like, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that changed the most is our amount of connection. That in previous generations, we we had more face-to-face connection. We had a lot more um, togetherness. Um, I think about my grandparents' generation. You know, they um, they just sat around living rooms and talked for hours and told stories, right? You guys remember hanging out with your grandparents and like if they were around other friends, they would just sit in a living room. They wouldn't watch TV. They wouldn't look at their phones. They wouldn't show each other memes. Like they would just talk and tell stories. And there's something about how their brains uh, we're interpreting all of that connection. They were, they were feeling these micro moments of empathy and love. And, and so I think that helped the, the previous generations to have a little bit more resilience um, in, in life's challenges. Now, at the same time, here we are fast forwarding and we can see that um, in, in, in many cases, almost every single demographic, every single generation is, is seeming to lose a little bit of that resilience power. And, uh, you know, my theory is in my two senses, mm-hmm. I think connection plays a big part of that. And so the more we can get back to a place where we really see each other and we connect and we slow down uh, and connect on a face to face level, I think we'll we'll see more resilience and more grit in the next generation. That's helpful, Will. Hey, as you were talking about those tools and, and even the shift, because I'm thinking back my my past week of just talking with a handful of parents that said my middle school student or my high school student or my my pre teenager is dealing with these levels of anxiety or depression and I, I just don't know how to talk about them and I, I don't understand and and, and and I heard you say this earlier when we started was th- this was just so different before, you know, we, we grew up in yeah. the 80s, 90s and seeing that shift. I, I started uh, being a student pastor in 2007, started noticing the shift where you're, you're saying, hey, one of the biggest concerns at first was the at risk behavior. But now all of a sudden this is shifted. And so can you walk us through a little bit about what are our students experiencing? Why is it so different? And and maybe, you know, is, do you have a theory of, or what caused that shift to happen? Yeah, well, I mean, we can't we can't uncouple mm-hmm. the the statistics from the rise of smartphones and social media. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a direct cause because I think there's been a general trend in this direction, but it is an influencing factor. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot to be said with social media. Uh, the way that teenagers are perceiving and receiving information from social media differs based off of gender and age. Uh, for instance, we now have a lot more research and understanding of how Instagram is affecting young girls' minds, um, specifically teenage the teenage mind. We're starting to see more data, even data that came out, I want to say, 
two or three weeks ago about how habitual checking on social media changes um, a, a teenager's response to social cues and connection uh, long term. Like they they almost the their um, their system kind of suppresses a little bit more. They're less reactive to some social connection. Um, and that's all from the ripple effects of social media. So we have to understand that the digital age has created a lot more disconnection. Um, when I compare that to how we grew up, like, so for instance, Tyler um, and John, I don't know how old you are, but you know, it, it, let's say that we grew up uh, before, uh, you know, if you guys were teenagers before really 2005, let's say, mm -hmm. Chances are you spent time with your friends every day after school. Like mm -hmm. um, we get out, uh, off of school, we ride our bikes over to a friend's house, we hang out, or we go to the basketball court, we play basketball or, or likewise. Like, so there was a lot more face-to-face -face connection. So Tyler, let's say that you were in ninth grade and a girl named, you know, Julie breaks your heart, right? And uh, you would go over to John's house, you guys are hanging out, you go, bro, Julie broke up with me and... And John, you'd be like, no, dude, you give him a bro hug, you know, and uh, <laughs> he'd be like, don't worry about Julie. You know, you know, Melissa's been looking at you. You know, she likes, you You know, you try to make her feel better, make him feel better. And and with that, like when that happens, we would see each other's kind of go. Ah, right. We would see mm -hmm. the facial expressions. We would hear the tone of voice. We would feel the bro hug. All of that communicates to our brains, empathy, love, seeing, right? It's a micro little moment, a micro deposit of connection. Well, now fast forward, ninth grader today experiences the same kind of disappointing event. Now they grab their phone, they text their friend. They say, dude, Julie just broke up with me. And now John doesn't just say, no way. He goes, no way. And then he sends you a gift or maybe an emoji. But it's not that John's not being empathetic. It's not that he doesn't care or that somehow we care less than, than in previous times. It's that our brain isn't interpreting the empathy the same way. Like, does that make sense? Like, so, so the connection is there, but the way that our brains are interpreting the connection is not the same. And I think that's an influencing factor of why we are now in an age where we can feel so connected yet still feel alone. Um, because it's, our friends are empathizing with us, but we're not receiving that empathy the same way. Our brain's not feeling it the same way. Mm -hmm. So th that's another uh, factor that I think has gotten us here. And then there's a lot more pressures. You know, when I talk to teenagers nowadays, they're worrying about things. They're they're experiencing anxiety on things that you and I didn't really ever fear. You know, mm -hmm. um, like one teenager I talked to recently is, you know, he started to realize how, he didn't want to go to school and it really was centered around um, he subconsciously was afraid of a school shooting mm -hmm. and uh, and it's just kind of this low level anxiety that he's worrying about. And, and another teenager told me, it's like, I feel anxiety every day because I just feel like there's always something bad happening like every day. And so they're really connected to news. They're connected to information. And all of this information overload is just making it feel so big. And again, I go back 20 years ago. Um, we didn't know about problems 
halfway around the world unless we turned on CNN or, or mm -hmm. Fox News or something, you know, like one of those news stations, which teenagers never watched, right? Mm -hmm. Now we find out about those things just because we open our phones, you know? Mm -hmm. So all these situations kind of are this information overload on the developing brain isn't helpful and it's increasing our anxiety. Then you add social media and the way that we're perceiving uh, uh, acceptance or rejection, um, the way that we are diminishing our face-to-face -face connections and the way that our brains interpret the empathy. I think all of that is a, pl is a playing factor to why we're here. So I, I don't like to talk about the why of we're here as mm -hmm. much as I like to talk about what can we do from here. Right. Um, and I really think that the answer is connection more and more and more. We have to create rhythms of connection where we're seeing one another for parents and caring adults. It means um, being really intentional on connection, like date your kids, like have a, a standing date where you're, it's just the two of you on a, a breakfast date or some type of activity. I'm a big fan of uh, little retreats or anything that you can do that kind of disconnects from the digital world to just kind of unplug for a little bit. Um, there, there's lots of things that we can do, but anything we can do to, to increase connection, I think is always a good thing. That, that's really little helpful. hacks yeah. in that? Yeah, go, go ahead, sorry, I wonder if there's like little hacks inside of that, right? So it's like, you mentioned the, the texting or the sending a GIF, right? Is there, um, I don't, I don't think, you know, students or whoever texting somebody that something wrong happened is going to go away. Right. right. Um, but. I mean, maybe it's a coaching to say, Hey, if something like that happens, you know, maybe you FaceTime your friend, yeah. um, you know, these little tiny, small little hacks that would be like just little tweaks. And the re mm. reality is part of the reason it's easy to text is because that's natural and it's right. less vulnerable. Um, yeah. but I'm curious, do, are there any other like that? Or is that just maybe something that you kind of try to acknowledge those, those little things that you can do to kind of switch the narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great idea of, at the very least, if, if it has to be digital connection, um, that you're trying to really help somebody to feel seen or feel like, you know, hey, I'm with you, I love you. Um, jumping on FaceTime is, is, I think, the better of the communications. Because again, once at least we're seeing our, our faces, we're hearing our tone of voice. The thing that we're still missing is that appropriate physical touch, which can be really, really powerful, um, especially for a parent to a child, by the way. And uh, the reason why it goes back to what I was talking about with attachment, um, when there's appropriate physical touch, um, you know, just even a soft, you know, touch on the on the face or the shoulder or a warm embrace of a hug, that releases oxytocin like phew, like really, really fast. And oxytocin is that powerful hormone that, you know, helps bring the two sides back together. So it can help them feel safe when anxiety or despair is really, really high and they don't feel safe. If they're experiencing rejection or social rejection and their amygdala is going off and saying, I'm not safe, I'm not safe, I'm not safe, my world is crashing. That physical presence of appropriate physical touch, eye contact, eye contact is another thing that mm -hmm. tends to release the oxytocin because the brain remembers feeling safe as a baby you're looking into their eyes you're smiling that soft tone of voice tone of voice is another key element there um, we talk a lot about that in the in the listening portion but all of those cues release the oxytocin so in terms of the hack uh, if it has to be digital i think facetime is the best mm -hmm. but um, as much as possible uh, mm -hmm. to show up i think is the the most important thing mm -hmm. um, 
for the next generation and, the and creating, <laughs> showing up as the hack and creating yeah. rhythms and conversation spaces. Like another hack we talk about is create a, a conversation uh, place in your, in your home where there's no electronics, no, no, mm. um, no TVs. Like we, we have this couch that's kind of known as this conversation couch. Like if somebody's sitting on that couch, they don't have a phone in their hand. They don't have a tablet. It's just a place for us to have conversation. So uh, being intentional with that. Uh, another hack that um, I love to do is you can get these conversation kind of starters. And so at family dinner, just grab one, have a conversation, you know, and uh, just getting in the habit again, that conversations are a normal part of our world and our life will increase uh, the connection. Because at the end of the day, we can't force someone to open up. Because uh, I get that question a lot too. Teenager, parents will, will say, how do I get my teenager to talk? You can't force them to talk. But what you can do is increase the opportunity for them to talk. So just you know, increase the at-bats and hopefully you'll hit a couple of home runs. It's really helpful. Hey, Will, as uh, we're, we're heading towards the end of time, we, we did have some parents uh, actually submit some questions uh, to us. And so uh, we can maybe call this uh, as much of a lightning round as possible, you know, as we can to, to sure. appropriately answer answer uh, what, what they're dealing with and some of the topics we, we broached down. But John, do you want to share the first uh, um, yeah. question that we got from a parent here? All right. So it's from a parent. Um, my 17-year-old recently went through a breakup and it was his first girlfriend. He took it really hard and kept trying to figure out what he did wrong for her to break up with him. He's become withdrawn, even angry when his siblings have brought it up. He says he's okay, but I feel like he's not. How would you talk to a teenager about a breakup and how it will be okay, and that life goes on, and that although it hurts now, the hurt won't last forever, and it's not their fault? Yeah, that's really good. Well, I think, um, you know, giving them time to emotionally exhale, you know, and assuming that maybe that's already been done, um, continuing to create space and opportunity for that. Uh, grief, grief doesn't have a timeline. Like it doesn't have a, uh, well, because you experience a breakup, you should be sad for approximately 10 and a half days. And then on the 11th day, magically, you're going to be fine. And, and I think we know that. The problem is, is we don't know grief's timeline for that specific individual, like for that 17 year old, like we don't know where they're at. So I think continuing to open up the conversation, create space for conversation, don't force the conversation, but once again, kind of do some check-ins and how are you doing? And if they're still really struggling and you just feel like they're having a hard time opening up specifically to you, this is where adding an additional voice, like a counselor or a small group leader can be really helpful. Um, all parents of teenagers know that in this phase, um, uh, our, we're, it's very powerful. Our connection is very powerful to influencing them, but sometimes our voice is dismissed by them. And so having other voices that are helping reinforce and um, speak life into our kids can be really, really helpful. Um, and then the other thing I would say is, if the conversation does come about, um, you know, helping them to reframe that negative situation in terms of, hey, I know that this was really disappointing, like we talked about, but what are some things that maybe are opportunities now or things that we didn't have before and um, that now you do have or what what could the future look like? And maybe there's there's somebody else that God has in mind and in mm -hmm. store for you. Um, let's imagine that together. You know, I don't know. There's some different things that you can do, but helping them to reframe that negative situation to see that um, it's not the end, that there is more to this. 
and um, and we just have to trust that process. But uh, grief grief doesn't have a timeline, and it could take some time. I think the most important thing is just stay stay uh, in touch, keep a pulse on that, and make sure that it doesn't spiral into uh, a deeper sense of despair. Yeah, that's helpful, Will. Hey, Will, we, we had two write in about a very similar topic, and we talked a little bit about this already with technology. One's a teacher, the other is um, a parent, um, and they're both related to technology. The teacher wrote, hey, I'm seeing more and more of my students being addicted to technology, and how do we talk about the anxiety or depression linked to it? And then the parent wrote, how do you incorporate it in different stages of life without sacrificing mental health? For example, she has an eight-year-old and a 13-year-old uh, who seem to be obsessed over YouTube videos and Roblox, and uh, they're afraid that they could be part of some of the stats that they're seeing related to depression and anxiety. So what, you know, in a moment is, is helpful with technology um, related to this? Wow, you're going to get me <laughs> on a soapbox on this one. Um so Roblox, day, I, we got the Roblox in our house too, yeah. right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, we have to teach teenagers and kids the importance of boundaries and moderation when it comes to technology. We already teach them this, by the way. Uh, for instance, we say things like, hey, you can have some candy, but don't eat too much because what? It'll make your stomach hurt, right? We we teach them the importance of, of healthy eating and, and you know sleep and, and so on. And we set boundaries for them in this regard. We need to set boundaries for the developing mind when it comes to social media and technology use. It's not popular. Uh, my kids tell me all the time, well, so-and-so's parents don't do this. And here's my response to them. Um, I say, well, just remember you have better parents. Um, and, <laughs> and maybe, you know, and, uh, and they roll their eyes usually. Yeah, they roll their eyes usually at that one. Uh, but I just we we just have to set some boundaries, and especially for kids who are under the age of ten. I think you know uh, I think the standard is they should have only like an hour of screen time. Um, that feels really hard to hit at times. So give yourself lots of grace. But how close to that can you get? And. Mm -hmm create some moderation and some boundaries. I'm a big fan of Bark. Bark.us is a monitoring tool, uh, especially for preteens and teenagers where you can kind of see some of their social media usage and their communication. And it's AI driven. So if something pops up, it'll notify you so you can review it. Um, so I just think we can't just give kids the keys to social media at 13 and say, good luck out there. It would be like us, you know, giving them the keys to a car at 16 without having a learner's permit for a year and helping them. Um, so I'm not saying that we avoid it. I'm just saying we should sit in the in the passenger seat with them with technology and with social media and so on and help them to learn the boundaries. Uh, I like to tell teenagers, don't wait for somebody else to tell you to create a boundary, just create the boundary yourself because they, most teenagers I, I've talked to, they, they understand uh, that there's negative consequences mm -hmm. to all of this stuff. And they want to be taught how to apply some of this moderation um, and these boundaries. So I think we just got to make it practical and help them to set some, some standards for themselves and, uh, and agreed standards. So not just telling your kid, like, here's what you're going to do. Maybe have a conversation say, Hey, what do you think would be helpful? What do you think is an appropriate time to be off all screens? Mm -hmm. And then they may say 11 o'clock and you say, let's meet in the middle, 9.30 or <laughs> 10 o'clock, you know, but have, I think the dialogue is important and uh, in helping them be a part of the conversation when it comes to creating boundaries and moderation with technology. 
That's really good. You, and you, we'll put a link of that bark in the in the description. So I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, for sure. Uh, would you include like some of the statistics and the dangers in that conversation? Is that like outlining, lining, Hey, here are the, some of the things that other students have experienced and we want to help prevent that from you. Because I know one of the big elements that a lot of students told me when they would have these conversations with their parents is they felt like they weren't trusted. Mm. Um, and how do we maintain that concept of you want to let you know who your kids are trusted, but you know, the trust, but confirm and all those types of, of phrases. Um, how do you help them still feel trusted while still giving them the process to set those boundaries? I think that's why the conversation is so important where they're part of the boundary setting themselves. Like, so it's not just a, here's what you're going to do and here's your boundaries and here's your restrictions. It's a, Hey, what, what can we determine together? Because Here's why. The goal isn't just to restrict them. The goal is to teach them health and mental health specifically. And if I, I think if we keep it centered around that, that the end goal is that we're trying to be healthy together and I'm applying the same principles I'm applying for you, I'm applying to me, like I'm going to watch my own screen time because, okay, let me pause on this one too. We can't just keep shouting to the next generation about their digital addiction without looking at our own digital addictions. Um, digital addiction is not just a next generation problem. It's an everyone problem. It's it's now starting to be seen in even older demographics. Mm -hmm. And so um, all that to say, uh, so I think the way that we navigate the, I want to be trusted by you, it's not the, I don't trust you. It's how can we create uh, boundaries, just like, you know, we would never say eat endless amounts of sugar and candy, like, hey, how do we, how do we create some standards together so that we can win here and specifically guard and care for your mental health uh, as a whole. And I, I do think most teenagers do respond to that well, because they get it, they see it. Um, I think the stats can be helpful for certain personalities. Uh, but I, I think most importantly, is just having a conversation. It's helpful. That's helpful. Hey, well, last question that we got, um, I, I, we won't read out loud because there was a lot of personal details there, but I wanted to summarize, because I think this is a very helpful topic. Uh, to, to summarize, the question is, how can you help your child's mental health when your marriage or your close relationship, maybe with your partner, um, is going through a really tough time? Uh, parents uh, right now are going through counseling. They're wondering if the marriage is going to make it. They're aware that this is probably having some impact on their child. Um what what would you say to them when 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 that's when that's happening? You know, my first thought goes to uh, don't navigate it alone. Like this mm -hmm. is probably a really good season to ask for help, mm -hmm. and uh, whether that help is through a counselor or through a small group leader that kind of leans in, um, or a pastor or a coach. But uh, don't just navigate it alone and just mm -hmm. try to. Um, assume that it's not affecting your kid because you're right in the sense that you know it's probably affecting them oh yeah it's definitely affecting them um and so they need a place where they can process and they may not be able to emotionally exhale with mom or dad in that situation because they don't want to get stuck or feel caught in the middle um and they don't want mom or dad to feel worse about how they're feeling especially if it's a pretty uh you know intuitive kid they may be suppressing and pushing their own emotions down, not feeling like they can really open up because they don't want to put added pressure on a strained relationship. Mm -hmm. So having a, another place where they can open up and be honest and emotionally exhale, I think is a, a really key uh, element in those kind of scenarios. That's really helpful.
And, that, and that's why having other caring adults in, in the life of your kids and students is just critically important uh, for, for times like yeah. this. So, yeah, that's good. Yeah. And that's that's one aspect of a very complex situation. But yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, the connection side of what we've already discussed, all that matters, too. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Hey, Will, do you have any final thoughts or any other ideas that you want to share with us um, before we wrap up? No, I mean, I think the most important thing is that as parents and caring adults, that we just remember that connection is a big part of the healing when somebody's experiencing anxiety or despair uh, or just going through a hard time. Like, so uh, keep showing up. That would be my encouragement. Keep showing up, show up, show up, show up and see them and um, and listen deeply and help the next generation to uh, to overcome these challenges that we're facing today. That's really good. Thank you, Will. Hey, before I turn it over to John to, to shut us down, um, just wanted to give everyone just some practical next steps that, that we would encourage. Uh, one that I would encourage everyone to do is uh, to click the link below and, and to get this book seen. Uh, Will, thank you for making it short and really practical. It just took me just a couple of days to read it. And so um, it's not overwhelming for any adult to, to read through and find helpful. So thank you for that. Um, and then another next step I want to encourage uh, families and parents to take. If your kid or student um, is not yet connected in our Ridge Kids or rich student environments. I think what Will is sharing about having another caring adult is a critical reason why you want to get them involved um, with, yeah. with that because we provide other caring adults that will be on your side and for your kid and for your students. So I'd encourage you to check out our rich kids and rich student environments. And then for parents and adults, you yourself, we, we need community. We need to connect as, as Will's talking about um, right now as we're recording this, this is the um, end of January. Our winter ridge groups are opening up in uh, just a few weeks. And so so we're going to link our website below. Check, check that out. Get connected and and see and feel seen. So, Will, thank you very much. Hey, John, do you have any final comments or thoughts as we wrap up? Yeah, just on uh, on YouTube, you can find all this stuff in the description. So you'll find links to Will's book, to how you can get plugged in with uh, Ridge Kids, Ridge Students, or Ridge Groups. And then uh, we'll also link Bark.us as a, as a tool for technology. We all have some other... Uh, guides as well in there but yeah you can check that and then in on our podcast it'll be in our show notes so thanks for listening thanks for joining us and have a wonderful week well that was our conversation with will for our youtube digital event you can find all the links that you need and that i and tyler mentioned previously in our show notes I would also just like to thank Will for the time that he gave us to, to just share from from his heart and from his works and all of his wisdom that he's learned throughout the time I also ask that, you know, if you know another parent or a mentor maybe that could really use this conversation, please share it with them. We want more people to be able to hear all the hopeful and helpful things that Will shared with us. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any hopeful and helpful conversations.